Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Robin. And today on Books That Burn, we are interviewing an author. Please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Shannon McGuire. I am being interviewed. <laughs> Wonderful. <Excellent. laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the way that trauma works in your writing? I mean, I am a traumatized person. I don't think that's any kind of a surprise to anyone who has encountered my work or me. Uh, it might be a surprise if you don't know that or if you haven't encountered those things. But I am a traumatized person, and I feel that anything you do that shows your scars is going to inform what you're working on. You know, there are occasionally times when I will write something and get told, oh, my God, that's super disturbing. But as far as I'm concerned, it's perfectly normal. I didn't think I was writing or doing or saying anything that might be upsetting to someone else because that's just literally how the world works. Um, my first series uh, is the October Day books. And in those, Toby has a really bad relationship with her mother. Um, and I periodically, like as a whole, I will not argue with other people's experiences of a work, whether it's my work or someone else's. That is not your place. You don't get to tell other people how to read or interpret something. But I have received um, email and such from readers who read the Toby books and were like, yeah, no, we're fine with a secret land of fairy coexisting with modern Francisco. We have no issues with that. But it is so unrealistic that Toby's relationship with her parents would be this bad. Okay. Um, the part of me that's a professional says thank you for your opinion. The part of me that is a traumatized child and always will be says fuck off and die. Uh, and I apologize. I know this is the clean language part of the show, and that was not intentional. Um, but, but still, it's like everything you do is very much informed by your trauma. It doesn't get to go away just because you don't think it's presentable right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's funny because that's something that we have actually grappled with as uh, as as readers. Um, it, it's interesting to see like you read something and then we hear somebody else talk about it, or we have somebody on as a guest and they're like what why would this be a thing and then we're like uh that was that was me <laughs> this is real <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird it's a weird dichotomy when people don't have experiences and then mm -hmm. they they almost find out about it third hand and, and don't know what to do i guess so uh understanding that the answer you just gave might uh, change the angle of this question a little bit. Has a traumatic <laughs> event in your books ever changed your perception of a character? Of a character? Yes. Yeah. Like um, sometimes authors will uh, tell us that they they I don't know. We're it, it did yeah. So when we say traumatic event, we're referring to like a traumatic event, like in your books, something happened to them. Have you ever had one where you wrote? A traumatic event in for a character and then it changed the way you thought about them like you is you that thought, ever the directionality like you thought you knew who they were and then you started writing their story or you wrote something and you went oh just kidding they're a little <laughs> bit different than i was expecting yeah that has happened occasionally um i have a trilogy under my mira grant name with parasitology trilogy and that is 
actually a, a set of books about intelligent tapeworms taking people over and driving them like meat cars because I write highly. And um, uh, that's there is. As you know, someone who I, loves Animorphs, that sounds very good. <laughs> yeah, the Parasite Trilogy, I love them. I think that they are they are not my absolute best work. I'm not going to try to make that claim, but they are very solid and they make me happy. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, once I've gotten past the initial, can this book sell well? Is this book going to be a success phase? That's right. what matters. Make me happy that it's a part of my canon now because I'm stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Parasite books, you know, they're all about intelligent tapeworms trying to get by in a world that is not real big on intelligent tapeworms taking people over and driving them like meat cars. I, and I um, thought that sentence was going to end with the world isn't very big because tapeworms are small. And well, again, they're taking people over and driving. Yeah. Once you have a car, the world is much more reasonably sized. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. So there is a character in that series who has what's called a tomato in the mirror moment fairly early in. Um, and tomato in the mirror is a trope wherein you realize suddenly, oh my gosh, the monster is me. And uh, I believe it was coined in reference to the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes cartoon. Where one okay. of them, literally <laughs> a person who had been mutated from a tomato. And uh, so I have that moment early in and I thought that this character because this was the first trilogy I wrote as Mira Grant after the Newsflesh trilogy I really thought that this character would you know just woman up and be fine she'd step forward to the challenge and she said nope I don't remember that what the hell do you mean it just happened it's on the page nope I am opting out of this entire plot line I'm out thank you have a nice day find another protagonist and so book <laughs> Me oh, fighting no. to get my protagonist back on board with being my protagonist. Oh, man. So that was a fun time. That, uh, honestly, I just, the concept of, of your character turning around and saying, excuse me, why? She, is was, not just so she funny. was not down for what I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, in a slightly skewing hopefully a little bit away from from trauma as a topic hopefully um in a related to like what part of you kind of ends up in your work kind of a question uh what parts of your personal identities do you notice making appearance in your writing maybe even a little bit more than you originally planned for i mean most commonly there is the fact that and i think that this is in part a reflection on society rather than a reflection on me um, yeah. Because I write all of my characters as people, I have a tendency to get accused of queer baiting a lot because oh. people can be like, oh my gosh, these two female characters are both written as if they were re fully realized people and mattered to the plot. They must be planning to hook up. Oh no. <laughs> um, I, I have never intentionally teased a same sex relationship that I did not actually go through on. Gotcha. But. I am a queer lady. I like the ladies. I am also a demisexual lady. I am not super interested in doing anything with the ladies. I just like to look. <laughs> and so I don't write sex. And if you are here for really graphic sex, if that's what makes you happy, I am never going to make you happy. Just pretty much. And it's not because I'm being prudish or I don't think there's a place for sex. I don't care. I am... Mm -hmm. 
interested. Asking me to write sex is like asking me to write the detailed minutia of an accountant's day. It's kind, it's not fun, and I'm not going to do a good job. Um, so my queerness definitely comes through, even when I don't mean for it to. Um, I am also neurodivergent. I don't think I have written a neurotypical character in my life. I don't think I can. Uh, there are limitations to every author, and this is one of mine. And when I try to write a non-neurodivergent character, it comes off as, hey, fellow kids, how you doing? It doesn't really... <laughs> Oh, goodness. That, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's on the flip side, as someone who is neurodivergent, trying to pretend that I'm not also feels like, hi, fellow kids, what's up? Mm -hmm. I'm totally not. I'm totally not thinking of something completely different than you with the same with the different outcome, with the same yeah. prompt. Like, yeah, that makes sense. And I don't sense. mind. I don't mind that all my characters read as somewhere on the spectrum. What I do mind is when people try to get me, like they will confront me on social media or whatever to get oh. me to, you have to actually say that canonically, Sarah Zellably is autistic. And I'm like, well, Sarah is, is not human. Her <laughs> brain literally doesn't work like a human's does. I don't think it's actually fair to claim that I wrote Sarah to be autistic rep because there's not enough rep that we can just start cramming non-humans in there. Well, and especially when yeah, a lot of the of rep is non-human and that's like a yeah. kind of a, an issue already. Yeah. Oh, I, I, mean, that's I am kind of very a, aware. Yeah. Mm, that's that like, a, that's basically, they're asking you just, a ca you're like, no category error. This, this is not, <laughs> no. Yeah. No. I'm not going to say that the species of always chaotic, evil, soul sucking monsters is autistic people. That's not a place I really feel like going this week. Could Much you stop? Much appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. No, that's that's your reaction, that's not their question. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Um Robin, do you want the next one or you want me to grab the next yeah, one? Yeah. Uh so talking a little bit about how you build the characters that then have bad things happen to them. What is your approach to incorporating visible queerness in your work? Like intentionally, not accidentally <laughs> this time. Oh, yeah. Well, the visible, I think, is kind of the key word there. You yeah. Know, every yeah, exactly. I write and read as queer, and it doesn't make a damn bit of difference if they never actually get to be queer. Now, that said, as an author who doesn't write sex and does not find it an interesting place to go, it is very frustrating to me how often I get told that queer content doesn't count if it's not graphically sexual. Like, I'm a lesbian while not having sex, y'all. If I were writing detailed sex for all of the straight couples and only my queer couples didn't get to do anything, that would be a valid complaint. But saying that there's no queer content because the queer couples keep their clothes on, when I think the most graphic sex scene I've ever written was less than a paragraph long, uh, is a little bit disingenuous and kind of holding us to an unreachable standard. But to actually add, you know, the visible queerness, generally, I try to make sure that it is with a character where they have something else going on. I am not particularly interested in writing, um, you know, Saturday afternoon specials. I really want characters to exist for reasons outside their sexuality. I said I'm still a lesbian when I'm not actively having sex with someone. Well, I'm also still a lesbian while I'm doing my taxes. Yeah. 
still a lesbian right now while I'm doing this podcast with two yeah. people <laughs> have never met and with whom I will probably never make out. You know, I don't think that that should be the only defining. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I also do kind of run into issues sometimes where it's like, well, if the language isn't there, the character is not necessarily going to state that they claim that identity. Right. And it's hard to in pick real a label life, when you don't know about it. Well, and, and yeah. then, like, not everybody goes around to other people like, hello, this is who I like. That's even for safety. Re- like, that's not just a thing that people just yeah. do. So it would be very, it's very weird when it's sometimes when it's in a book like that. Yeah. Um, how does setting influence queerness in your stories? I mean, setting influences queerness in part through language. Um, I am I am very fortunate. I, I say as if I had had nothing to do with it, but I am very fortunate that most of my primary series are set in places where I can decide the social rules. So, you know, Toby's universe, they have a big hang-up on inheritance. Um, There's an entire set of commandments from one of the firstborn, which are the people that kind of run fairy, but we all wish they didn't, uh, telling her descendants to go forth and multiply, basically. She wants to have, she wants to outbreed everybody else. And so they tend to focus on uh, heterosexual marriages until they have an heir. If you are not actively in line to inherit a throne or are, um, are already in possession of an heir, which is a relatively rare and very exciting state to be in, they, they have no interest. They don't care. There is literally just, okay, whatever. You, you do what you're doing. We don't care. Do- I hope this is not a spoiler. In that universe, uh, does adoption count or does it have to be bloodline? So you can do adoption, but it's very, very rare because, again, extraordinarily unpleasant person. Like, the the particular person I'm talking about and not naming is, I think, no one's favorite character. And and that takes some doing. Okay. Like, Mm -hmm. she is the worst. Um, I definitely do not like her as a person. She's a fascinating character. (laughs) Yeah, she is not a good person. She is the worst. I I worked very hard to make sure she would be the worst because it's hard. (laughs) than some of the other characters uh, and she manages it i'm proud of her um but <laughs> her specific commandment was you know take these thrones in my name hold the world for me option is okay if you can find someone to adopt but Faye live forever if not killed and as a consequence have phenomenally low phenomenally low birth rate okay so even finding someone who does not have a family already is exactly gotcha and then literally be married for centuries and 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 i I would guess that if you uh that she would probably want whoever you adopted to be of her bloodline or she might not think of that as counting towards oh absolutely if you are trying thrones for her yeah, if you're trying to do as you were told, which most of them are, because they are all dutiful descendants, which is not the smartest thing to be, but it's kind of what she set them up for. Uh, parental damage is a big theme in my work. Uh, but, you know, they're trying very hard to be dutiful and to do what they were told to do. And so they are not going to go, well, I managed to get a throne for you, mom. 
And right. then I am someone from a different bloodline. <laughs> like, oops, sorry. Sorry. It was almost good. So adoption is fine. And we do have one fae queen that we've confirmed who does adopt because she was asexual. Uh, I think she's dead now. I'm not actually certain because this is in the 1500s. But we have at least one documented case of adoption. You just have to have a big enough throne that someone will give you their kid. Gotcha. Um, let's, so we're going to, uh, move a little bit away from queer representation and ask about pers uh, representation, uh, for characters of color. Uh, mm -hmm. what is your approach to including these characters? Do you have a, a formalized approach? I don't have a formalized approach. I, I tend to try to, um, represent basic, I have a rule basically that if you are someone I know well enough that I would give you a sandwich and you tell me you've never gotten to see yourself in fiction, I will include you in the next book I write oh, from Heller okay. Potter. And, and that has worked out reasonably well a couple of times now, but it also means that I get a built-in, not sensitivity reader, but cultural consultant. Oh, you know, cool. if I am oh, writing cool. a character specifically for you and you know that, then I'm not being an asshole when I go, hey, how does this work? Right. Hmm. That's you know, a, I do... Great yeah, I do at least currently try to make sure I'm not uh, writing anything where I don't have, at minimum, a cultural consultant, if not a sensitivity reader. Um, sadly, sometimes I'm on projects where, because of NDAs and the like, I literally can't hire a sensitivity reader unless my publisher allows me to. And so I have to stick with those cultural consultants. Mm -hmm. I do try to be very aware of where my lane is, and, and that can be difficult. You know, uh, you'll have today, every author with a platform should be writing a main character of color, and tomorrow, white authors should never be writing characters of color. And I try not to let that stop me, even though I have a near pathological fear of being yelled at. <laughs> Which is interesting for someone with Twitter as a major platform. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I have blocked like 30 people today alone. Oh, I fully believe it. I've seen some of the comments that you've gotten on things where yeah that's it it's interesting yeah but you know twitter yelling is not is simultaneously not real yelling and is kind of subdivided into do i deserve it or are you just being a dick gotcha that makes sense all the people i'm blocking today i'm blocking because yesterday after i watched someone who had been vaccinated get cornered by a family member going, well, now you have to hug me because you can hug me oh, again. Geez. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really awful. I wrote a thread saying, hey, as we get back to being allowed and able to safely hug each other, please keep in mind that you are under no obligation to let anyone touch you. And it's, it's a very measured thread. You can probably still find it because it was just yesterday. Twitter is a fire hose, but it's not that fast measured thread and it's not saying hugs are bad it's not saying if you're vaccinated keep not doing anything it's you still have bodily autonomy even after a global pandemic and these people are mad about that because i as a woman said that uh, you are under no obligation to touch people and they correctly read that as this is a thing that will mostly happen to women and people who are presumed women and uh that may nothing makes dudes mad like saying a woman's body is not public property yeah absolutely <laughs> 
So uh, I I know. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, we'll link that thread in the show notes because by the time this comes out, that thread will have been months ago and unfindable. So, So, yeah, um, we'll help you out there. (laughs) In that specific case, I know for a fact that I said nothing wrong. Right. So Mm -hmm. yell at me and I'll just block you. But on the other hand, if you want to call out the fact that a lot of my earliest work was published in 2009, 2010, the conversation around ableist language was in a very different place. Yeah. So if you're reading my earliest work, you will find a lot of casual ableist slurs. I, I genuinely did not know. No one had ever told me. My publisher didn't call it out because it wasn't something people were paying attention to yet. That does not make it okay, but ignorance is not something people should be punished for as long as they're making an effort to learn. Yeah. Uh, and about once... Once every couple of years at this point, somebody who has been told that I am a super inclusive, super aware author, which is like, that's cool, but that is not actually a reputation I'm trying to foster for exactly this reason, <sighs> will earliest books and get pissed off at me because in a book with a pub date of 2009, I use a word that we have all retired from our vocabularies because we don't want to be bad people. Right. And then pop on Twitter and start screaming at me because I was told you were safe and look at this thing you did that is not safe. And I understand that they're speaking from a place of pain, that they wouldn't be yelling at me if they were not already bruised and I hadn't hit their bruise. But I'm not the one that told them it was safe there. So maybe yell at the person that set you up to hurt yourself. And those yelling ats make me sick to my stomach. And when they involve something recent, when it is no, you really did mess up recently. Yeah. Um, I do my absolute best to avoid that, not even out of sensitivity or kindness, but just because I don't want to vomit on my cat. Fair enough. I'm sure your cat also appreciates that. Uh, does not my cat like kind of deserves it. So. <laughs> uh, actually, so uh, speaking of characters with disabilities, uh, do you tend to write disabilities into your narratives with a particular set of reference, either that exists in the real world or if you make up rules that work for a world? Um, or do you tend to write cultures that kind of hide disabilities or they just don't make it in there? The majority of my work has been either urban fantasy or near future science fiction. So you are our world, basically. Okay. And a lot of the same degree of hiding or not hiding disability. Um, I tend to write disabilities that, again, I have a cultural consultant for, although more frequently it is myself uh, mm-hmm. because I am a person. I admit there are neurodivergences that I would not be comfortable writing, either because they deserve to be own voices stories or right. because they have been so villainized that I don't know how much I am acting off of stereotype and misassumption and how much I'm acting off of real information. There is also a a nasty tendency, and and this is one of those things that I find very upsetting, even when I know it's not personal. There's a nasty tendency on all our parts, because we're all bruised, to uh, go looking for intentional damage. So in that Parasite series that I mentioned before, There is a woman named Shanti Kale, uh, who's actually named after my boss at the time, and I hope she took that as a flattering thing. But there's (laughs) Shanti Kale, who is a wheelchair user. She was not a wheelchair user when she was with her ex-husband. We have a point 
fairly late, I think book three, where the, the ex-husband and Shanti are in the same place for the first time in the series. And he says something really shitty to her. And her response is, oh, yes, because, you know, wheelchair users are so helpless and then wheels herself over his foot. And someone that I know we are we weren't good friends, but but she, like this person knew me and I thought that they would have a vague sense of where I was coming from, hopped on Twitter and got furiously angry at me because you should do better. And mm. I, as a wheelchair user. That is an ex that is like an actual encounter I have lived through multiple times. I wrote it, lived it. Um, and so because we are not in a place right now where we can actually think the best of people, even when they have demonstrated no intentional harm, I do back away from disabilities where I can't say no own voices. Please stop saying I eat babies because your experience with an ECV at Disney World was not exactly like mine. Yeah. So when building your, we talked a little about a couple different kinds of parts of characters' identities, but when building those, what aspects do you intentionally include? Uh, very, very few, unless it's a case of somebody told me I never get to see myself in stories. I am um, what George R. R. Martin calls a gardener. Oh, good. Um, okay. Right. Looks as if I were plotting a trip to Disneyland. You know, you know that the first thing you do is going to be hopping on the Haunted Mansion and you know that your dinner reservation is for the Blue Bayou at seven. Everything in the middle is up to you. And so I kind of, I figure out what the book is. I figure out where it starts and I figure out where it stops. And then I just let them go. And I tell the characters, okay, do what you're going to do. And I will make decisions when I have to. And then they do what they're going to do. And I make the decisions when I have to. And I find that that as a, as a character generation process gives me people rather than toys. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so we're going to ask probably one last question in our spoiler-free section. And then we'll we'll go on to the... The spoiler zone, so to speak. Rock and roll. Uh, do you consider your character's physical description when writing how other characters treat them? I mean, I think you kind of have to. Um, because people, people are shallow. People are always going to be shallow. I try to make sure that I am not including unpleasant hot buttons um, more than absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I have Verity, who's a professional ballroom dancer, and she is extraordinarily careful with her appearance because she knows that people are judging her on it all the time. Um, and then in that same series, we have her baby sister, Antimony, who does not care. Uh, <laughs> If you want to judge her, go right ahead. She'll judge you at the same time. Um, but as long as I'm writing in worlds that are this closely connected to ours, I don't think I can get away from uh, away from that, even if I want to, which I would kind of love to because I don't really care all that much. They're not people that I actually get to meet. They're not people I need to pick out of a police lineup. I would like them to feel real to you, but... Knowing what feels real and what doesn't is so very difficult. 
you know, yeah. thing that goes on social media periodically where people are fun of men writing women. And they're like, no one stands in front of a mirror and thinks about her breasts that way. Well, yeah, some of us do. Some do, but not every character and shouldn't be every. No, not every character. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. I, yeah. I was a very fat child and um, I have lost a lot of weight. And sometimes I will stand in front of the mirror and just like look at my boobs, trying to figure out what they're doing today. Because I don't know. <laughs> and they haven't taken me. Um, or I because I still have large breasts. I'm just very aware of what they're doing most of the time. Yeah. If I if I'm, you know, exercising or I'm not wearing the best bra or something, I know exactly what's going on there. <laughs> and if we are in a first person book and so you're getting my internal monologue, then then yes, to me the natural thing to do is to talk about my boobs because it's an internal monologue. And then if you do that, you get told, well, no, real people don't do that. It's like, but am I am I not real? Yeah. <laughs> Like, I also am Maybe a real I person, don't... thank you. <laughs> well, for someone who doesn't exist, you've written a lot of books, so. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, I don't need job. to sleep, because that is something only material people do, and I'm not real. <laughs> uh, uh, weirdly enough, uh, one of the books that we're going to ask you about in our second half deals with that exact, hey, I am a real person <laughs> concept. Uh, <laughs> so... I feel um, like it's not weirdly when Shannon has those thoughts and wrote that book. That but. that is the joke I was making. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I was scarred by the last unicorn at a very young age. Oh no! What does it mean to be human? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to be a person? What will distinguish a person from a human is yeah. a that I beat on a lot. Gotcha. Yeah, that happens. Uh, mm -hmm. so uh i feel like this is a good place to turn to our outro stuff so Yay. yes uh what is your favorite non-traumatic thing in any of your books there is a sequence in um the fifth october day book which is one salt sea wherein Toby rides a mermaid in a wheelchair down a large hill in San Francisco. And uh, that remains one of the best things I will ever do. Uh, my second favorite, and possibly my favorite, depending on the time of, of day, is either the death in feed that I've referred to obliquely but will not directly call out. Because I have never hurt anyone the way I hurt my entire readership with this book, including myself. <laughs> As badly as you think it hurt you, I had to do that to my imaginary friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's not okay. And kind of like Dodger's suicide attempt, that was one of the things I couldn't take back. I tried and tried and it couldn't be done. Oh, you know, that is that is a close second. Or Nancy and Sumi actually having the asexuality 101 talk in Every Heart a Doorway. Because not everything needs to be 101 in this world. It's it's not how things ought to work. Everyone should get different levels of representation and different levels of needing to explain shit. But I've had so many readers contact me over that scene. You know, go, thank you for, for helping me find the language I needed. Or thank you for putting the language in a published book that I could show my father, my grandfather, whatever to explain that, see, it's normal enough that it's in books. Uh, 
Do you have a favorite book written by somebody else? And if so, what makes it your favorite? My favorite book written by somebody else is probably It by Stephen King, which I read for the first time when I was nine years old and thus younger than the members of the Losers Club and have reread at least once a year ever since. And I'm now older than the members of the Losers And what makes it my favorite is really nothing the book itself did or does. It's the fact that because I have been rereading it on such a precise schedule for my entire adult life, I have been able to watch the ways that my own responses to things changed as I changed as a person and occasionally use that to go, you know, I don't like how I respond to this part now. Is it because I am becoming a person I don't like? And sometimes the answer there is yes. And it's time to back up and do some more therapy. Yeah. Do you have any queer authors and or authors of color whose work you're, you'd like to shout out? I mean, I think the majority of the authors that I am actively reading that are younger uh, in the sense of publishing, if not necessarily age, are, are queer. That is so common among the cadre that I'm following these days. Um, kind of, and of course, all names leave your head as soon as he asks you that question. <laughs> But uh, Meg Elison is, is a big favorite, and uh, she is a queer author. She is a feminist author. She is an unabashedly fat author who actually writes about fat people as if they were sexual creatures and worthy of desire and worthy of being included in a full universe and not just sidelined to the funny comic relief or whatever it is that they're allowed to be this week. And that is so novel and so refreshing to see uh, that it's just glorious. Um, literally about five minutes before the start of this podcast, I finished reading a book called Agnes at the End of the World by an author named Kelly McWilliams. Um, and Kelly is, uh, she is mixed race. So she is an author of color. She was able to write the book in part because of a We Need Diverse Books mentorship. Um, Um, I don't know for sure, but I strongly suspect on her web presence that she is, in fact, queer, um, because people who are not queer tend to refer to their to their spouse at some point by a gendered term, whether they mean to or not. And her spouse is only referred to as her partner. Um, that's not. But I would say there's a good chance that she fits uh, both sides of your question. And I don't think speculation is the same as outing, thankfully. Uh, because my particular era of queer says that outing someone is the literal worst thing you can do ever under any circumstances. Um, I very much enjoy Amal Elmontor, who is a, uh, oh God, I have forgotten completely. She is Canadian, but she is also an author of color uh, from another country whose name I have just forgotten because I am a terrible person uh, to get it wrong. Yeah, what, what I've, uh, read by her is um this is how you lose the so this is how you you lose the time war that she co-wrote uh -huh. with max gladstone yep it's it's so good <laughs> oh yeah she and i were both up for the hugo that year um her, i i want to say in an absent dream and as soon as i saw the ballot i'm like nope it's fine i've lost <laughs> like oh there you go i, just, I I don't even have to get worried about what I'm going to say. Like, there is no need <laughs> to award because I'm not winning this award. Hope is yeah. the 
So uh, that was kind of great. Yeah. Uh, but Amal is fantastic. Sarah Kuhn, who does uh, urban fantasy and a lot of YA romance. She's done some work for DC Comics. And uh, she is a queer woman of color, and I adore her. Um, we are uh, we are publishing mates at Daw Books, and uh, she just she makes me very happy. She's fun to go to Taco Bell with. All right, thank you for those. And then, where can our audience find you? I mean, as you've mentioned, I basically live on kind of a tragedy. How much time I spend on Twitter. And as you pointed out, it is also fairly perplexing, pathologically averse to being yelled at as I am, spends this much time on Twitter. But there I am and there I tend to stay. You can also find me at uh, www. Well, there's no www. Too old. Oh, my God. You can find me at uh, seananmcguire.com. Uh, I am on Instagram, though my Instagram is 90% pictures of my little ponies, uh, which is not everybody's cup of tea. It's definitely not my publicist's cup. Which is something else, anything else. Please, God, why are you photographing every single generation one My Little Pony in chronological order? No one cares. <laughs> but the people who care know exactly where to go for it. Right? Yeah, the people who care care so much. Yeah. And it's like, well, this is the this is the only engagement I've been dreaming of since. So how about you let me have this one space? Um or you can find me on Patreon as Sean and McGuire, um, or Tumblr as Sean and McGuire. And uh, I am relatively active in both of those places. Well, uh, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, this was really, really great. And we didn't even get interrupted by cats. Well, so, <laughs> well at the very end, Right now in this outro, we got interrupted by cats. But until then, it was extremely cat-free, which is a real trick with three cat households. Yes. Uh, yes. So <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, you can find us at booksthatburn.card.co. That's card with two R's. And you can catch our regularly scheduled episodes uh, every other Monday and uh, again, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Bye.